Hello, and welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, and I'm here with the full crew today. Alex Ward and Jen Williams are back and ready to go. Hey, hey. What's up? So today we're talking about Idlib, a city and a province in northwest Syria, and around three million people live there, many of whom have been displaced by previous rounds of fighting. It's the last major rebel stronghold in the country. And sometime very soon, Bashar al-Assad's forces are going to try to retake it. He'll get help from his Russian and Iranian allies. And based on what all of these sides are saying, the death toll could be catastrophic. So, Alex, walk us through the backstory. What is happening here? Sure. So let's just remember that on one side you have, again, Bashar al-Assad's forces backed by Russia and Iran. And on the other side you have a ragtag group of different rebel groups. You have terrorist groups, all that are anti-Assad and effectively backed by Turkey and once by us forever ago. The issue here is that Assad has, over the past couple of years, especially since Russia came in in 2015, has done a really good job, frankly, a horrifying, but really good job in, right. in seizing control of territory west of the Euphrates. And Idlib is the last area. That's where all the rebels have gone to. Because in past fights, when they've come to a ceasefire, they've sent those remaining fighters and civilians to Idlib. And so it's now the last rebel stronghold almost by design. Right. Three million wasn't the pre-war population of Idlib. It was it was much smaller before then, right? This is just an influx of people from all over the country who are now at serious risk. Right. Right. And the issue here, of course, is that of those three million people, more than half live in makeshift housing. So I've talked to some people who do humanitarian work on the ground there. They're just living in in in, in squalor. They're living in, in tents, some of them. Some of them are just living in, in burned-down houses. They have no access to food, water, medical attention. Right. So obviously there are a ton of civilians, like you said, Alex, but there are also rebel fighters who have been kind of pushed out. Some have fled, all banded together in Idlib to make their basically their final stand, right? This is the last stand. And if you think about the way, like, fighting and wars work, right, the fighters who are left, these aren't the guys who were, like, farmers and dentists who just, like, took up arms for a week. These are the hardcore guys who were left after years of fighting. So these are the hardened, tough, battle-tested jihadist groups, mostly Sunni jihadist groups. So we're not talking that, like, this is an easy fight that's going to go down. This is, like, horrific, which means it's entirely possible and probably likely that Assad will use chemical weapons as part of this offensive. And, and not just chemical weapons, right? The overall approach that the Assad forces have used during the conflict, especially in recent years, is to, to basically violate every conceivable known rule of, of war right. in order to win. And that includes most viciously, in addition to the chemical weapons, deliberately starving civilian and military targets alike in order to cow people and to surrender. One analyst, uh, Jennifer Caffarella, has termed this a siege-starve-surrender strategy. Right. Uh, and you just, you, you batter these people into submission. You take away their food. You take away their water. You take away their medicine. And they, you take away their will to fight. Now, this is explicitly a war crime uh, under the way that we understand the international uh, rule of yeah, under law any of war. definition, yeah. under any moral definition, this is immoral to like starve your enemies and then like bomb children. But now we have you know this massive population of people who are about to be targeted, almost certainly using these strategies, and the fighting will be intense and block to block for the reasons Jen was describing. And Assad and his allies. So remember, Russia is one of the key backers here of Assad. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is making extremely aggressive noises about the conflict. 
He's saying, and I quote, the Syrian territory is liberated from terrorists. All that's left to be done is to eliminate the remaining hotbeds of terrorists, predominantly in the Idlib province. And also at one point, Lavrov called Idlib a festering abscess that needed to be liquidated. Uh, and a festering abscess, end quote, that needs to be Quote, liquidated. That's so, a direct quote. Yeah, that is a direct quote. A festering abscess that needs to be liquidated. There's a reason why they keep using the term terrorists for this region. There actually are terrorists there. There is a group that was once affiliated with al-Qaeda that is the most prominent group in the area. I think, Jen, you pointed out yesterday that it controls about 60% of the region. Right. But there are civilians and there are tons of other folks. So it's it's not wrong to say that there are terrorists there. And frankly, a lot of people, or a lot of countries in the region want the terrorists gone, but not in the way that they're going to go about it. What does this mean, this offensive, this fighting that will likely be very intense, actually? Uh, talk me. Talk to me about what it actually means for the people on the ground there. Right. So the thing is that Philip Smythe, who's an expert in Shia militias and in Syria and Lebanon in the region, I was talking to him about this. And he was telling me that Assad's forces are not actually super well prepared. They're not, they don't have enough forces. They don't have enough bodies, enough people to actually carry out this massive offensive in the way that they did in previous offensives. The Iranians and the Shia militias that Iran backs to help in this fight are not really coming to Assad's aid in this particular battle. They don't see it as a big strategic goal for them. So the problem is what that means is that it's probably going to be an extended fight. If they could just come in and do this really quickly, it would still be brutal and horrific, right? Either way. But if it turns out to, again, you have unprepared, not well-equipped Assad's forces going against these really battle-hardened, hardcore Sunni jihadists in the middle of a city that is already, like, overflowing with civilians and refugees from other parts of Syria. If this turns into, like, an extended, long, drawn-out conflict, we're talking about once again, seeing massive refugee flows out of Syria, potentially. It's a massive humanitarian catastrophe. When I've talked to people who are providing aid to folks on the ground, here's kind of the things they're telling me. In Idlib, of the 28 hospitals, eight are just completely bombed out. So they're useless. Most of those hospitals that remain have almost no medical staff or, or medicine, period. Which means you have all these millions of people having to travel even further to go get any kind of medical attention. In fact, in one town... Like, the only maternity hospital was bombed out. And so there was no gynecological care, no ability to, to kind of give birth. That's before the offensive starts, right? right? Obviously, Idlib has been—the region itself has been bombed and, and actually has received chemical weapon attacks for, for years during this conflict. Right. That's but, a really good point. It's not like this town has been sitting there pristinely. Exactly. Like, this yeah. town has already been part of the war. Like, Syria in general is devastated. There's right. not a part that hasn't been touched. And That's Khan, a great point. Yeah, and Khan Sheikhoun is a—where where there was a chemical attack in April 2017 is in Idlib province. So right. this, this place has seen war and devastation. And it could only get worse, which is even more, more horrifying. This is foreseeable, right? We know that this offensive will start sometime soon and that there could be chemical weapons involved, that there could be this absolute, that there will be some kind of absolutely brutal fighting. Yeah, Russian, massive Russian airstrikes. An untold number of people will die. This setup with this kind of threatening rhetoric reminds me of the way that Muammar Gaddafi talked about the city of Benghazi right before the United States intervened to stop him from a similar assault on that city, used similarly dehumanizing language right. about the people who lived there and so on. So in the past, this has been a this this exact situation has been a justification for U.S. intervention. 
What's, what is the Trump administration saying? The Trump administration cares only about one thing, the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime or backers. And so it doesn't really matter. I mean, you even have Nikki Haley almost effectively saying— Nikki Haley— Nikki, is, the, U, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She effectively said, like, look, if they're going to go ahead with this thing— I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but look, if, if they're going to go ahead with this thing, that's fine, but they just can't use chemical weapons. And that seems to be the line. You're hearing that from Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense— so that's our line. That is our red line. Right. But Trump has kind of had a little bit different comments on this. Uh, at one point, he said, the whole world is watching. That cannot be a slaughter. The world will get very angry, and the United States will get very angry, too. So you've got mixed messages. He also, Trump recently did an interview with the news outlet, The Daily Caller. News uh, outlet. In which he related the story and said that he had spoken to a Syrian woman here living here in the United States. And According to him, as he related the story, she told him, look, like we, meaning like the rebels, still have a chance in Syria. Like, if you help, can you please help? And I'm worried, like, there's going to be massive bloodshed. And again, I'm paraphrasing his story, but he said basically back to her, you know, I don't really think there's going to be a lot of killing. I don't really think there's going to be a lot of lot of death. And she goes to him and says, well, no, my family's there. I do think so. And he goes, well, you know, I guess we'll see. And that's just stunning. You know, it goes back to—and this is not to say that the U.S. should intervene in every conflict everywhere ever, right? But the fact is that, like, we—as you pointed out, Zach, we see this coming. We know. We have actual, like, Syrians in America speaking directly to the president going, seriously, my family's going to be slaughtered. Can you help? And Trump's response is essentially like, I'm watching, but we'll see. But that's that's his response to everything, though, when he doesn't know what, what's going to happen, right? I mean, it, that— I know it's not comforting in any way, but I'm also, who was surprised by that response? Well, I'm more concerned about the lack of a concerted set of messages from the administration about what to do and a plan for what to do when there's a predictable humanitarian catastrophe going on. If there's 3 million people and a huge percentage of them become displaced and many more need urgent humanitarian medical care— what is the United States going to do? We're certainly not going to take in Syrian refugees, knowing the president's stance on this in the past, which I think is morally indefensible. But we could at least play a role in mitigating the humanitarian situation right. on the ground. There are a ton of options between shrugging your shoulders and saying, I don't know, we'll see, and like launching a military intervention. We often present that as this like binary, especially in D.C., kind of foreign policy conference. That's bullshit. There are a ton of things that the administration can do, including like, pushing at the UN, being like, you know, can we make sure that we have, like, funding, putting out funding calls to, like, help make sure that we have more humanitarian aid, sending non-conflicting messages to the Assad regime, getting involved and going, you know, hey, can we work out some sort of plan to, like, move civilians out? Like, even, like, sending humanitarian aid, sending money, something. And we've already cut off, like, funding to, you know, all sorts of places, including in Syria. So there are plenty of things that we could do even the least of which giving a consistent message and saying, we will not accept this as a slaughter. Think carefully about how you go about doing this. I, I want to agree with all of that, but my, my only pushback is what leverage does the U.S. have? I mean, the diplomatic channels and the U.N. or just in general have not worked. We have 2,000 troops in Syria, and they're in the eastern part of the country, so they can't really do much on the ground. Humanitarian groups have a lot of trouble. They've talked to me. They've, they have a lot of trouble just getting into the affected areas in order to provide that aid because of constant bombing and danger to their own lives. So I would I want to agree with you tremendously right. on that, but at the same time, we've kind of lost our suasion and our ability to to affect absolutely. the help in this and crisis. That's the, that's the bottom line. That is the absolute bottom line of this entire conflict is the U.S. has already washed its hands of everything to do with Syria, which means if we even wanted to get outraged right now and send a message, they would just go, fuck you, we don't care. That That's 
sort of the point that I was trying to make earlier, right? Like intervention is not a plausible option uh, for the United States at this point, given who the president is, what the past president did. Nobody thinks the U.S. is going to stop the actual slaughter in the way that they did in Libya. But as Jen just said, there are things that you can do that are not just threatening or using force or doing nothing, Right, and this middle ground of policy, this important set of things that could save thousands, maybe tens of thousands of lives, are, are, as far as I can tell, not publicly being considered or talked about. And remember, when Trump met with Vladimir Putin, again, the Russians are basically the ones who are going to have to help Assad win this. Like, Assad can't do this on his own. It's going to require massive Russian airstrikes. Uh, And so the Russians are a huge player in this. And remember, when Trump met with Putin at Helsinki— One of the things of the few things that he actually told us that came out of the meeting was, I talked with Putin and we want to work together on Syria. So he does actually have a direct line to Vladimir fucking Putin. He could call and be like, look, we're not okay. Like, what can we do? Can we work something out? Like, he can literally pick up the phone and call Vladimir Putin and go, like— can we work out some deal with aid? Can we? He can call Turkey and go, like, what can we do? He's not helpless. He's not, like, someone who can just sit there and shrug his shoulders and go, I don't know, we'll see. Dude, you're the president of the United States. Pick up the fucking phone and see what you can do. So I want to take a step back here uh, and talk about the big picture. Because as much as we can discuss the granular detail, and it's really important to understand that, Idlib will fall. The rebels are not strong enough to withstand a joint Syrian Iranian, Russian offensive on their territory. Now, what does that mean for the arc of the Syrian civil war if Idlib is retaken by the government? Right. Well, first, there's a way to possibly stop even the offensive, and that's if Turkey or Russia makes some sort of deal. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, right? Russia's going to back Syrian forces as they do this, and Turkey, which is on the border with Idlib, uh, they don't want refugees, so they're trying to strike some sort of peace deal. It doesn't really look like that's going to happen, in part because Turkey definitely doesn't want to cross Russia because Turkey needs Russia's approval to be in Syria to fight the Kurds. So that's that's just a whole uh, important sort of backstory to this. So the two countries that could possibly stop this from happening won't. What happens next then, as you say, when Idlib falls, frankly, the real answer is no one knows, but it's probably going to be horrible. Uh, you'll probably see even more insurgent fighting um, as groups try to gather little pockets of their own area. You're going to try to have Assad basically say, well, I'm effectively running most of my country now from on the west side, so therefore I'm going to keep pushing further. Uh, and 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 he may be even more emboldened to be harder. Uh, who knows? He may even push into the east and go where the U.S. is. Uh, right. I think that's a really important point. It, this doesn't mean the Syrian civil war is over. Right. Like, this is the last major, huge, like, city battle that— will fall eventually. Again, it could be a long time before it falls, but it will almost certainly eventually. But all those fighters, like, plenty of them will scatter like they do anywhere else, and they they don't go away. So, you know, it kind of depends. Do they just go, all right, fuck it. It's over. Let's just give up. It's not likely, right? They've been fighting this. They're probably more likely going to continue to try to keep fighting and, like you said, turn more into an insurgency you know, doing kind of smaller scale terror attacks and kind of like launching smaller little kind of offensives sporadically rather than being like a a real hardcore civil war. But that still is unrest. That still is danger and violence and death and destruction in Syria. So Assad, it's not like they're like, all right, it's over. We can start rebuilding Syria now. Serious civil war is over, guys. Everybody go home. That's highly unlikely. Not only that, there's a huge question about what to do with the rest of northern Syria. Right. Right. Because you have this 
large chunk of territory on the Turkish border that's controlled by serious Kurdish minority. They call it Rojava now and basically treat it as an independent state. Right. It's like their own country. Right. And the Turks don't want that because they have a Kurdish minority of their own that is kind of separatist. And Assad might want his territory back because he sees it as his country. Right. So he's previously not really messed with the Kurdish territory, but is now the territorial fighting shift to the Kurdish thing while there's potentially an insurgency going on right. in other parts of the country. Like it's this is an end when Idlib falls. It'll be an end to a particular phase of the exactly. Syrian civil war. But it will not be an end to the Syrian civil war writ large. The war will keep going, just in a different form than what we've seen in the past. And so with that, we're going to close with this segment, not the whole episode. Uh, Stay tuned through the ads, and you'll hear us talk about the weirdness of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's Twitter feed. Debt. Some have a lot. Some have a little. And the vast majority of us at least have some. True. I know I do. That path to financial freedom can look awfully bleak when you have high-interest debt. And if your FICO score isn't great, it can make breaking out of that revolving debt cycle way harder than it needs to be. Thankfully, our sponsor Upstart is revolutionizing the process of personal lending. What? Yes. Upstart has revolutionized how we borrow money by going beyond the traditional FICO score to offer personal loans, taking into account factors like job experience and education when determining your interest rate. It's quick and easy. Checking your upstart rate is free, and it has no effect on your credit score. Wait, what? Free and no effect? No effect None? on your credit like not score. Even a little not bit. even a little That's bit. That's crazy. And your upstart rate check just takes two minutes. And if you're approved, you can get your funds as soon as the next business day upon approval. Amazing. And you can pay for just about anything. When you're approved for a personal loan with Upstart, the funds are yours and yours alone. You can use them to pay off credit cards, consolidate debt, eliminate student debt, or even make a large purchase. The choice is yours, Alex. I have the power? You have the power. Amazing. So hurry to upstart.com slash worldly to find out how low your upstart rate is. How low can you go? How low can you go? Checking your rate only takes two minutes, and again, it won't affect your credit score. That's upstart.com slash worldly. It's a great week to start watching Vox's show on Netflix. It's called Explained. And every episode is a 15 to 20 minute deep dive into one important topic. This week's episode is Why Women Are Paid Less, Explained. And it's amazing because it digs deep into that fact you've probably heard, that across the world, women earn less on average than men do. In Poland, for example, it's 91 cents per dollar a man makes. In South Korea, it's just 65 cents on the dollar. But a huge body of research also shows that overt pay discrimination only potentially explains a small part of the gender pay gap. So if it's not all about discrimination, then why are women around the world paid so much less than men? The episode challenges our understanding of the gender pay gap today by exploring the causes of the gender pay gap in recent history. It features interviews from the most influential leaders and thinkers on the topic, both in the U.S., like Hillary Clinton, Anne-Marie Slaughter, and Greta Van Susteren, and around the world from countries that are making big strides, like the Prime Minister of Iceland and the Rwandan Ambassador to the UN. And it's narrated by Rachel McAdams. I think you'll find it fascinating, so go check it out. You can search for Explained or for Vox on Netflix, or you can just go right to netflix.com slash explained. 
For elsewhere, we're going to talk about former Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, an anti-American religious hardliner who also has a super strange Twitter feed. Jen, what's going on here? Right. So uh, our colleague Alexia Underwood, who's uh, an editor on the on the foreign desk with us here, uh, wrote this amazing piece about it that we'll, we'll have in the show notes. But Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, just for a reminder for people who might not remember who that is, uh, he was the guy who was the president of Iran uh, during the Bush administration. You used to see him in this like kind of navy blue blazer and like a, a white button up shirt kind of unbuttoned railing at like a microphone. He is pretty well known for uh, regularly calling the Holocaust a lie. He blames the U.S. government for 9-11. He once claimed that there are no gay people in Iran. Whoa, if true. Right, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and fact check false. He was so ridiculous, it got to the point that even SNL did a skit making fun of him and his comment that there were no gays in Iran. Like, it, it involved Andy Samberg doing one of the digital shorts. He's at a piano. He's just serenading Ahmadinejad and effectively declaring his love for him as Fred Armisen dances around. Mahmoud, I remember when it started. Saw you on the news. You were hating gays. I was eating food, but I was feeling you. And even though I disagreed with almost everything you said, you ain't wrong to me. So strong to me. You belong to me. Like a very hairy Jake Gyllenhaal to me. It was this weird moment where America was making fun of the Iranian leader for his just horrifying language. You can deny the Holocaust all you want, but you can't deny that there's something between us. So this guy is known as this kind of crazy firebrand. And he kind of went away for a while uh, in Iran. In President Rouhani, Hassan Rouhani is now the president and has been for a while now. Um, but he's making this kind of kind of populist comeback and trying to reinvent himself politically in Iran. And he has this English language Twitter feed, which is kind of interesting. And this week he decided to tweet about, of all fucking things, Colin Kaepernick, and the NFL, like, kneeling during the national anthem controversy, and Serena Williams' outfit. That's so weird. Okay, yeah, what is happening? I don't know. <laughs> I wish so, I knew. Okay, we, none of us really no, know. I know, right? I know, but, like, no, I'm saying, but, like, I'm, I'm just so perplexed by this and weirdly just fascinated by it. I mean— it, The dissonance, just the, the yes. between him historically and him now. Is, and also, yeah, just to like, be clear— How is Ahmadinejad woke? Like, what's happening? Right, so <laughs> the wokeness— So let me be clear what he actually tweeted. He wasn't just tweeting, like, randomly about Serena Williams. He was criticizing the French Open for disrespecting her for not letting her wear her black cat suit. So he's, just to be clear, the former president of— Iran is calling out the French Open for discriminating against women who want to wear whatever they want to wear. Totally tracks. Iran, <laughs> a country not totally super well known for being really open to letting women wear whatever they want, considering they literally require women to cover themselves and cover their hair. Zach, you mentioned by law. Yeah, I, I, I want to yeah. do a lightning round here where each of us offers one theory as to what's going on here because I, I, I don't know and I don't think anyone knows again because it's all in Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's head. So I want uh, everybody to offer their opinions. So I, Alex, why don't you start? Oh boy, I get to go. Um, I'm going to say he's just trolling for the fun of it. All right. That's a solid, solid guess. It's a solid possibility. I'm going to go with what some people have posited, which is that he's trying to deflect from Iran's terrible human rights record at home by pointing out human rights and, you know, other kind of violations and civil rights and, like, cracking down on protests in America. Look how bad they are. Don't look here. 
Yeah, I, and I'm going to go even further and say it's an attempt to delegitimize the United States, right? It's not just deflecting from Iran. It's This is a, like a common Cold War era tactic was for the Soviet Union to point out how terrible American racism was as Which, a way like, of- fair. Yeah, no, 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 totally. They had a point, but their goal wasn't to like actually fix racism, but rather to call into question the entire American liberal democratic project by pointing out its contradictions, right? And Mahmoud Ahmadinejad seems to be doing something similar by being like, these Americans talk about freedom, but look what they're doing to Colin Kaepernick. He didn't say that. The Soviets were more explicit, but that that's my read on what's going on. I think at the end of the day, what you really should take away from this is the fact that fucking Twitter, man, 2018, everybody's tweeting everybody. Like the former president of Iran is tweeting shit about Serena Williams. Trump is tweeting about North Korea. Like fucking Twitter, man. All right, we're 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 done for the day, uh, and I want to thank our producer Bird Pinkerton, our producer Jillian Weinberger, our social media manager Julie Bogan, and I would also encourage you to rate, subscribe, review Worldly on Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you get your podcasts. See you next week. Adios. Bye. Hey, listeners, I'm Arthur Brooks, host of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like this show, I know you'll enjoy listening to my new podcast. In it, I explore the art of disagreement. My guests and I provide some practical advice for navigating disagreements with friends and family, persuading and inspiring others through storytelling, and countering social media's amplifying effect on the culture of outrage. Listen and subscribe to The Arthur Brooks Show on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice.